0: Welcome to a Nutrition and Clinical Practice podcast. I am Dr. Jeanette Hasse, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. The theme for the February 2016 issue of NCP is Surgical Nutrition. Joining me today is Dr. Rosemary Kozar, co-author of the paper Feeding the Postoperative Patient on vaso Support, which is published in the February 2016 NCP issue. Dr. Kozar is a Professor of Surgery at the Shock Trauma Center at the University of Maryland in Baltimore, Maryland. So thank you, Dr. Kozar, for joining me today. You're welcome. So before we start a discussion, I'd like to ask Dr. Kozar if she has any disclosures on this topic that she would like to
1: share. I have no disclosures. Thank you.
0: Well, for those of us who practice nutrition support in the ICU with our critically ill patients, it often seems that the patients who are the most ill tend to be the ones in greatest need of nutrition support, but also tend to be the most difficult to feed. In the introduction of your paper, Dr. Kozar, you discussed that there are barriers to initiating feeding in these patients, and you specifically name obtaining enteral access and illies as common barriers. Can you give our audience some insight as to how one could maybe overcome some of those barriers and be successful with early post-operative tube feeding?
1: Certainly. I think the the first thing is the enteral access. That's probably the easier one to accomplish. For those of us that are surgeons and when patients go to the operating room, it's just more of a change of culture to get people to think about nutrition and think about enteral access when you're in the operating room. We used to place a lot more surgical feeding tubes than we do now, but just putting the enteral access in the operating room when the patient's asleep. You could manually place the tube exactly where you want it. It's certainly very easy to get a or duodenal feeding tube in when you're in the operating room. You can manually just feed it through the stomach uh, with the assistance of anesthesia. That gives you, you know, distal feeding tube access or even proximal if that's what you want or a surgically placed tube for those patients who you think may have more prolonged needs. So For that matter, the access It's more of getting people just to think about it when you're in the operating room. Post-operatively or in the non-operative patients, it's a little bit more challenging, particularly if you want to do something other than gastric access. A lot of it, though, is learning what's in your institution, learning what the capabilities are, figuring out what works in your institution, whether it's radiology, fluoroscopically placing tubes, if it's your surgeons, you know, we endoscopically place our own post feeding tubes. So just understanding your institution and what you have available is also a good way to overcome some of those barriers. Now, Ilias is more challenging. If you're in the elective setting, and we're talking particularly about surgical patients today, I would advise thinking about feeding in the very early postoperative phase. The earlier you think about it, the earlier before gut dysfunction can ensue, I think really sort of helps prevent ileus. So early postoperative feedings in those patients or even early diets in those that are able to take feeding by mouth is one good way to prevent ileus. For those patients that have an alias, you're operating on them for an emergent procedure, that's a bit more challenging. I don't think we know yet when it's safe or how much we could give those patients, but prevention, like many things, is probably the key there. Probably low-dose trickle feeds is safe in the alias, but more of trying to do things that you can can within your capability to prevent or mitigate ileus? The usual things like backing off on of narcotics, correcting electrolyte imbalances, ensuring good bowel function, those type of things to help at least lessen the ileus the best that we can. Dr.
0: Kozar, the topic of your paper is one that's a frequent discussion in the ICU with regards to providing two feeding with patients who are on vasopressors. So I have kind of two questions here. Mm-hmm. One is, why should practitioners be concerned about tube feeding in patients who require presser support? I think it's most of the time because clinicians fear that the tube feeding in a patient on pressors can lead to bowel necrosis. So how often does that really occur and under what circumstances?
1: So you're correct. The, the fear is always worsening or creating um, bowel ischemia secondary to feeds. It is an entity known as non-occlusive bowel necrosis. It does occur. A number of studies have documented that the site where the feeds hit the gut and distally becomes ischemic in response to feeds. I like to think of it more of a small bowel stress test almost. You're, you're supplying these nutrients to the intestine that's already being stressed from the critical illness. When does it occur? How often? It You know, it's hard to say. It depends how attuned people are to think about it. Uh, to report it. Unless you have access to autopsy studies, we don't really know what happens. We know patients are already critically ill, and if they get worse, is it the underlying etiology? Is it the onset of bowel necrosis? It's hard to know. Series report, usually less than 1%. The problem, even though it's incredibly rare, is the mortality is anywhere between 50 and 100%. So we're trying to do things, we're trying to give the nutrition to our patients because really what's important and it helps their outcome, and to do something that is potentially fatal certainly puts fear in us and makes us think twice about it. I guess another question would
0: be whether mm-hmm. it matters what type of vasopressor is being administered. And as we know, sometimes patients can require more than one pressor. So what tends to be of the biggest concern, the type of pressor, the dose of the pressor, or the number of pressors that the
1: patient's receiving? They're all important factors. For me, it's maybe not which presser, which dose. It's more what's going on with the patient. There's that patient that's becoming sick that you're escalating the, the dose of pressors on. And there's that other sort of spectrum where someone is on pressors and you're de-escalating. They're getting better. They're responding to your treatment. And so I think they're just different spectrums of the disease. And probably it makes a difference where the patient is at probably more than the specific presser. There is certainly available literature suggesting that some pressors are, are safer than others. Certainly, you know, low dose debutamine is better than high dose epinephrine. You can envision if a patient is on more than one presser, they're probably the sicker patients. So it would seem to make sense to me that the more pressors the patient is on, probably the more high risk they are and probably the more dangerous it is to push tube feeding in that type of patient. Certainly lower dose seems to be better than higher dose since most of these pressors are obviously vasoconstrictors. And if a patient is already having subclinical gut ischemia from their critical illness, the last thing you want to do is further enhance the gut ischemia. So the lower the dose, certainly the better. I also think it makes a difference what the patient is on the pressor for the patient that's on fluorid septic shock is probably different than the patient that you maybe be pushing the the MAP, the mean arterial pressure, to enhance their, say, intracranial pressure differential, or maybe you're pushing the MAP because they had a stroke. So sort of knowing what's going on with the patient, I think, is just as important as the particular type of pressor and the dose and the number of pressors.
0: That kind of leads me to my next question because we know that a lot of these patients in ICU impressors can be difficult to feed. So, how much of that difficulty is really caused by the effect of the pressors on the gut, versus the pressors just being a sign of critical illness and gut failure?
1: I really think that's probably the hardest question to answer because there's no way we know. If we had some type of um, monitor that we could look and say this is what the gut's doing now and start the feeds and then we know the difference, it would be a very nice way to know it's the illness, it's the problem, or it's the pressor's effect on the gut. But we really have no gut-specific indices that we can look at that helps to guide us in that. We can look at systemic parameters such as a lactator-based deficit, but that is by no means specific to the gut versus systemic illness. So that's really the the hard part of this, particularly when you have someone on pressors and you're feeding them and they get sicker. It's like, am I making this worse? Is it the tube feeds that are making this worse? Or is it just simply the illness that's making it worse? I wish I had a good answer to the question, but I really don't. I certainly think if a patient is on pressors and being fed and they clinically deteriorate, certainly backing down on the tube feeds or stopping them, depending on the severity of what's going on, is probably the safest thing to do.
0: You mentioned trickle feeding a little bit earlier. So what are your thoughts on trickle feeding versus full feeding in the population of patients?
1: That's another difficult question to answer. I wish I could say that we have this great data that says early full feeding is beneficial. But but as you know, the data isn't that clear cut and isn't honestly that strong. Despite that, I believe most of us think that it's important to feed patients um, not just their calories but adequate protein But I think if you can't accomplish that, whether the patient has an ileus, whether the patient is on high-dose pressors, I think at least if you can give some type of tube feeding to maintain your gut integrity. So for different reasons, I think that the low-dose trickle feeds are probably maintaining your gut integrity, probably very separate from actual nutrition. So I think if you have to, you should at least do that. And then if you could safely escalate to full feeds, that's certainly ideal. It's very hard for me to believe that starving our ICU patients for 7 to 10 days doesn't have some detrimental effect on their recovery, regardless of what the current data shows. It's just hard to imagine that starving and further stressing patients is an acceptable therapy. So I think it's important to try to feed the patients the best we can, but if you can't do what you think, give them the goal feeds, the volume or whatever that you think. It is important for those patients at least to give them some trickle feeds.
0: Well, I think probably a lot of our listeners are going, okay, what recommendations can this expert give me? So this is
1: your chance to give us your <laughs> overall
0: recommendations for providing two feeding to these patients requiring pressors. What what would you tell us? I
1: think the first important lesson is to think about it. Don't say, oh, they're on pressors; They can't they can't have feeds they can't tolerate feeds so thinking of it and making it a priority thinking about it on a daily basis and considering the adequacy on a daily basis and the cumulative deficit that you have i think changing that culture and making that part of your your rounding experience is an important sort of part of this irrespective of the presser so the just that make, making the nutrition an important part of your rounds is key Then there's things in the surgical patients, and that was the focus of this, that you could think about. Certainly early feeds, not worrying so much if they've got the traditional signs of bowel recovery, not worrying about the fact that there's an intestinal anastomosis. That data is pretty clear-cut that that doesn't make a difference. So some of the old traditional contraindications to feeding patients, just need to sort of be overcome. And that's sometimes hard in terms of changing culture, what people are comfortable with and what particularly surgeons may be comfortable with in their patients. So it's education and it's, you know, making people aware of the literature. Other things that we haven't really talked about that... that may not be sort of thought about a lot, but particularly for surgical patients that are, or even septic patients, other critical ill patients that are getting resuscitation, sort of optimizing resuscitation strategies. And as we learned a lot about, particularly in trauma patients, as we decrease the amount of crystalloids that we give patients and decrease the amount of bile edema. I think it's much safer to feed our patients than it was in the era where we were seeing a lot more bowel necrosis So I think understanding that maybe the bowel is in a little better shape with current resuscitation strategies than it that may have been 10 years ago may make you a little bit comfortable feeding a patient on pressors with current strategies compared to what we used to do. So I think having a feeding protocol, understanding the goals of the protocol, having parts in your protocol that say, if this isn't working, I need to think about bowel ischemia. I need to think about is the clinical deterioration potentially due to tube feeds and have strategies to back down or stop the feeds, but also, so I'm going to stop them for 12 hours, I'm going to reassess, and then starting them back up again. So not just this isn't working, stop, and then Completely forgetting about it, but reassess on a constant basis and then re escalate your tube feeds as you sort of go through, through the things that may have caused an increase in presser requirements or a worsening of clinical status. So, you know, again, keeping that culture of nutrition is something important, I think, is really probably the key to this. And again, always understanding that pressers can potentially be dangerous. And most importantly, there is not good literature at the current time to say yes or to say no or this presser okay and this one isn't or this dose is safe and another one isn't. We really don't know. And so personally, I think being on the more conservative side, knowing that the data out there certainly isn't level one data, that it's safe to feed patients on pressers, I think erring on the side of caution is probably beneficial. That doesn't mean never do it. That doesn't mean not to put patients on tube feeding but if you're going to do it to really have that sort of in the forefront i'm doing this i think it's important but i'm thinking about what also can be going wrong and i'm keeping that in the forefront of my mind so sort of keeping the importance of nutrition but balance it with the knowledge and the constant thought process that this could be risky and that i'm always going to be thinking about it a long answer to a short question but it, not an easy one <laughs>
0: Well, thank you for those words of wisdom. And with that being said, do you have any other comments or concerns that you'd like to bring up to our Mm -hmm. listeners? My last
1: comment, I guess, is that the data really isn't where it needs to be now and that we really should strive to have some better data for the safety, the types, the doses, all the things that we've talked about, which patients may be safe and which patients may not. What are some gut-specific indicators that we could look at to look at safety? So I think there's a ton of research questions out there, and I really just think we need to lead the forefront and start to answer some of these important questions because then it will make this a much easier discussion. Well, I want
0: to thank you, Dr. Kozar, for sharing your expertise with our listeners. And I want to invite our readers to find out more about surgical nutrition in the February 2016 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Thank you.
1: Thank you.